TheYeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Nancy Miller in memory of her parents, Reb Moshe Ben Eliezer and Cyril Bas Reb David on the occasion of their yard site on the sixth day of Adar. May the light of their memory continue to shine. May they continue to be good interbetters for their entire family. We may all be reunited with our loved ones with the coming of Mashiach. Thank you very much for your dedication and deed to all of your blessings. And Tehei Nishmasam Tzrura, B'Tzrur HaChayim, and always be a source of blessing for all of you and the entire family and all the Jewish people. Also dedicated by Reb Shalom Patash, in loving memory of his father, Reb Yaakov, Ben Reb Chanoich Henech and Esther, whose yard site was on the fourth day of Adar. Tehei Nishmasam Tzrura B'Tzrur HaChayim. There's source sheets if you want. There's a famous story everybody knows that the Gemara tells in Tractate Megillah, I think it's page 13, that Haman, when he cast a lot to figure out what would be the best day to execute his genocidal plan against the Jewish people, so he was extremely overjoyed when he saw that the lot fell out in the month of Adar. Why? Because the month of Adar is the month when Moshe Rabbeinu passed away, on the 7th of Adar, Zion Adar. And uh, for this, so for, for Haman, this was a great uh, sign that his plan might Khalila be successful. The Gemara continues, Haman did not know that it's also the day that Moshe was born. It's not only the day when Moshe passed, it's also the day he was born. Because on the 7th of Adar, Moshe Rabbeinu both passed away and was born, as the Gemara learns out, from the Psukim, say that today I became 120 years old. Today, the very same day of his birthday, is the day that he also returns his soul to its maker. So Haman thought this is such a glorious sign for him, but he didn't realize the day has also an opposite meaning. So commentators ask a question. It doesn't say anywhere in Chumash clearly that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away on the seventh day of Adar. It doesn't say there's no date for Moshe Rabbeinu's passing. His brother Aaron, it says when he passed away, Rishchidosh of. But that's the only yard site that's mentioned in Chumash. No other yard sites are explicitly mentioned in Chumash. The way we learn it out is the Gemara has a whole way of learning it out. That after Moshe's passing, Yehoshua and the Jewish people mourned for 30 days. And then Hashem said, okay, after 30 days, in three days you're going into Eretz Yisrael. And they went into Eretz Yisrael on the 10th of Nisan. So from that cheshbon, we figure out that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away on the 7th of Adar. And then the Gemara says, and since Moshe said that today my years are filled, we know that it's also the same day when he was born. In other words, it was 120 day, years from day to day. Zion Adar to Zion Adar. If so, if Haman was such a Talmud Chachem, and Haman was such a Lamdan, and Haman knew not only what it says in Chumash, but he also learned... <laughs> He also knew what the sages expounded from the Psukim in Yahishua, that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away on the seventh of Adar. So why didn't they teach Haman the second part of the Gemara when he left for that part of the class? The first part of the Shia that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away on Zion Adar, Haman knew. The second part of the Shia, a line later, Haman left when he was checking his phone. What happened? That Haman missed out that point of the Shia. The first thing is not explicit. The second thing is not explicit. They're both implicit. Haman was such a scholar about Jewish dates, even things that are not explicit in the Tanakh. Why didn't Haman know that as well? So there were two contemporaries who gave both the same explanation. 
they, I don't think they knew of each other because they lived in different parts of the world. Yet Rabbi Yonason Eipschitz was one of the great sages in Germany in the 18th century. And in Ukraine, you had Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, one of the students of the Baal Shem Tev. So I saw that the Moir Enayim, which was authored by Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, in Parshas Tetzave, he has an answer. And the Sefer Yaris Dvash from Reb Yonis and Eipschitz, he gives a very similar answer. They lived in the same era, but I don't know if that, I don't think they knew of each other. So they both say as follows. When the Gemara says Haman didn't know it was the day that Moshe was born, it doesn't mean he didn't know that it was the day of Moshe's birthday. He may have known that it was the day of Moshe's birthday, just like he knew it was Moshe's Yartzeh. That's not what the Gemara means. What the Gemara means is as follows. He knew that it's the day that Moshe passed away. He didn't know that the day that Moshe passed away is the day that he was born. Not talking about his own birth, but rather that the day Moshe passed away, it's not the day that Moshe's life ended. It's the day that Moshe's life began and was reborn in the soul of every single Jew. So Moshe's death was not the end of Moshe's life. It was the end of Moshe's physical life as an individual. But it was also the beginning of the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, in which his soul was, so to speak, transplanted, a piece of it, a spark of it, in every single Jewish soul since. So that the day that he passed away is not the day that Moshe's life ended. It's the day that his life was multiplied. Instead of being one person, it became millions and millions and millions of people. As the Gemara says in Masechus Brachas, Moshe told the Jewish people in Parshas Ekev, and now, what does Hashem ask of you only to fear Him? So the Gemara says, Is fearing Hashem such a small thing to say, What am I asking of you already? What I, I asked you to hang up your coat. What's What is He already asking you? The Gemara says, It's such a small thing that you could say, What am I asking of you? Yiris Hashem is not such a small thing. So the Gemara answers in, From Moshe, it's a small thing. The question is, Moshe wasn't talking about himself. He was saying, What he's asking of you. How does it answer the fact that for Moshe, it may have not been so big. So the Tanya says in chapter 42 that every single Jew has a piece of Moshe. When the Gemara says, it doesn't mean relative to Moshe himself. It means relative to the Moshe within every single Jew. Yerushalayim is inherent to the very fabric of the soul of the Jew. So that Moshe was born when Moshe passed away. It didn't die when Moshe passed away. That's what Haman did not realize. And that includes the fact that Moshe, we say, even though physically Moshe, passed away so many thousands of years, but Moshe's words, Moshe's life, Moshe's, Moshe's presence, Moshe's teachings, Moshe's Torah lives on in the mouth of every single Jew who learns Torah since, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. It continues. The Gepasek says, when Moshe passed away, nobody knows the place of his burial. So it's also symbolically, not just physically, they don't know the place of his burial. In a, in a way, nobody knows the place. You can't point and say, here, Moshe is gone, Moshe is end, Moshe is buried, because Moshe's, so much of Moshe's life continues. We call him Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the name that Jews call him, Moshe, our teacher. As a teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu never ceases to teach, never interrupted his teaching. To the point, the Gemara says that every Talmud Chacham, Moshe Shaper Kamrit, is still called Moshe. Because that spark of Moshe still lives on. And that's why 
we say everything in Torah, everything that Moshe taught is eternal, it's timeless, it continues to live. So this is an opening, since today is Zion Adar Aleph, the seventh day of Adar Aleph. So it's the, connected to the Yartzer and the birthday of Moshe Rabbeinu. We're going to take one of the mitzvahs of Parshas Tetzava, which at first glance seems completely not relevant to today's time, to today's age, and yet show the timeless eternity of it and relevance of it, just like everything else in Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah. Because the day that Moshe passes is really the day when Moshe is born in everybody's soul, in everybody's heart. So Parshas Tetzava deals with the mitzvah. Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Tetzava, He tells Moshe Rabbeinu to oversee and organize the weaving of all of what we call Big Day Kohona, the priestly garments. After Parshas Truma, which deals with the construction of the Mishkan itself, the sanctuary. Parshas Tetzava deals with those who are going to serve in the Mishkan, which are, of course, the Kayanim, Aaron and his children in that generation, or Kayanim in subsequent generations. And part of the service required that they don special uniforms. The ordinary Kayan had four garments that he donned each morning before he came into the Mishkan or the Besamiktosh to do the Avaidah. And the Kayan Gadol had... Eight garments, four of the ordinary kayan and an extra four. The four garments that the ordinary priest donned before entering into the Mishkan to do the service was the Ksainas, Mechnasayim, Megbas, and Avnet, which means a tunic, a shirt, and pants, and a hat, and an Avnet, a belt, a girdle, a gartel. The Kayin Gadol, who served in the Mishkan, Aaron, or in the Beis Hamikdash, in later generations, he had eight clothes, Shmoinab He donned eight garments, and they were mitznefes, which is also a hat, and then the number two was the ksoinus, which is the tunic, number three was the avnate, the belt, the gartel, number four was me'il, the robe, or the coat, then there was the tzitz, the tzitz is on his forehead, there was a golden plate on the forehead called the tzitz, engraved with the two words, kodesh l'ashem, then there was the Mechnasayim, the Kohen Gadol's pants. And then the last two were Chayshin and Eifait. Eifait is an apron, and Chayshin is a breastplate. And these last two we want to focus on. If you turn around, if you turn your sheet around, you have here the picture. I took this from the Temple Institute. may not be the most accurate. There's maybe a few flaws here and there, but it just gives a general description of the last two garments that we want to focus on, you have here the aphoid and the chayshin. The apron, which hung in the back of the kain gadol, the lower part of his body, and the chayshin, which was the breastplate that you could see on his breast. So you also see on top of his head, you see the mitznef as the hat. On his forehead, you see the tzitz, which is that which was on his forehead, the plate on his forehead, which was made of gold. You also have the blue robe made out of turquoise, me'il tchelas, under the apron and under the breastplate, that is called the me'il, the robe. Under that, you see the white, you can see the ksoinus, the tunic. And you'll see that the blue robe has bells and pomegranates on the bottom. So when Aaron walked in, there was a ruckus, there was noise that was made. But above everything, you had these last two garments, the aphoid and the chash. What was the aphoid? The aphoid, Rashi famously says that... Uh, Rashi gives a very interesting example 
of um, <clears throat> Rashi says in Parshas Tetzave that the Eifoid Asui Kamin Sinar shall Noshim Roichvay Susim. That's the language Rashi uses. Sinar in Hebrew is an apron. So Rashi says the Eifoid is like the apron that women who ride horses wear. And uh, the story that was always told in the Chadarim in Jewish schools was that when Rashi was walking one morning to his yeshiva, he saw a woman riding a horse with an apron. And Rashi asked himself, why did God want him to see the sight? And then he realized that day he was writing about the aphoid and he was struggling to understand what the aphoid was. So he actually, very rarely, that Rashi should do this. He could say it's an apron. He could give, but he actually is very graphic. So that's the story that they used to tell in Cheder, that Rashi sought. Famous Balshemtiv, the Balshemtiv once said that everything a Jew sees or hears is a lesson. It's not random. It's part of my purpose in life. Nothing that I see or I hear is just a coincidence. It's not just a random mistake. You, you, you have to see and see. You have to see and things here every. You have to see things and hear things every day. But that also is a lesson. So Rashi gives that example, and he says that the apron was covering. Aaron's back, the lower part of the back, the lower part of the back. In other words, it begins in the waist and it goes down all the way till the bottom of his feet. As you could see here, they made the apron covering the front, but really it didn't cover the front, maybe just a little bit. Mostly it was an apron that covered the back of Aaron. It also had a gartel, a cheshev, that allowed him to tie it. You could see the apron has a gartel that he ties so that it holds. And that was called the aphite. As you could see in the first source on the other side of the picture, chapter 28 of Exodus of Shmois deals with the garments. So he says, They shall make the aphite. They, of course, means the artisans, the great weavers, those people who were hired, they were skilled work. They were the skilled artisans who built the Mishkan and have woven all the garments. They should make this ephod, this apron, zahav. It's made of gold and chelas, turquoise, which is a wool that's dyed with the bluish, greenish, turquoise color. Argaman, which is a wool that's dyed with purple. Tela Ashani, dyed with scarlet red. Sheish Majzar, it should all be woven with linen. Maise designed, a work of design. That's the ephod. So it was a very, very, like all the garments made of, of rich fabric, a combination of all of these fabrics, materials, mostly wool, but also linen and gold together. This was the ephod. And the Pasa continues, ah? Yes, yes. Some of the big day kohuna had shatnas, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a separate shear, but yeah. Some of the priestly garments, even the ordinary kayan, the avnate, the belt of the ordinary kohen also had shatnas. The other garments not, but the belt of the ordinary also had shatnas. That's why it was a problem for the kohen to wear any of these garments, not during the Avaidah. During the Avaidah, Hashem says to wear it, so it's not a problem. Same God who probate shatnas told him to wear it, but if he wears it, Stam, let's say, uh, he's going to a chasana, <laughs> and he wants to dress up in nice clothes, it's a problem because, besides using the property of the Beis also the problem of Avnate because of shatnas. Yeah, that deserves a shear. Why, why would it be shatnas? Yeah, precisely shatnas. You see here, 
you have tchelas, and you have sheish, that's wool and linen, turquoise wool and linen. Now, the apron, though, was not just, okay, so you tie an apron and it covers the back of Aaron all the way from, from, the, from the waist, all the way down to the legs, the back, not the front. There's a gartel, but there's another part of it. As you could see in the picture, there were two straps that came out of the apron, and also from the back, not from the front. As you could see in the picture, the one on the right, there's two straps coming from the back of the aphoid, and they extend upward, and the right one goes over his right shoulder, the left one goes over his left shoulder, and it comes till the top of the chest, the top of the torso under the neck. And over there, as you could see in the picture, two annex stones were set. And that's what the Pasa continues in the first source. You take two stones called shayam, I think it's called annex in English. I think O-N-Y-X, if I'm not mistaken. And in each of those stones were engraved the names of the Shvatim. Six on the right, on the one stone, and the other six on the other stone. And Ketel was done according to the order of their birth. So, on, on those straps coming out of the apron that now came on top of the shoulder, they came up on the shoulders of Aaron or any Kayan Gadol, and they went over the shoulders, you had two stones set, and in these stones they engraved the names of six Shvatim on one, six Shvatim on the other, so that all of the tribes of Israel, which of course included the entire Jewish nation, were remembered and engraved in the Aphite. Ah? Good question. Great question. The question is, as we'll see in a moment, the same names were also engraved on the Chayshin. Why the redundancy? Right? Okay, great question. Now let's come to the next garment. The next garment you could already see in the picture. It's called the Chayshin or the breastplate because it was on the, on the chest, on the heart, the breast of the Kayin Gadol. It's called, says the second source, Chavches Tesvav, this is Exodus again, chapter 28, verse 15. You should make, you, you should make, by the Eifud he says, they shall make. Here it's Vasisa, you shall make. Which doesn't necessarily mean that Moshe Rabbeinu had to make it himself. It means that Moshe had to oversee it. Yet, by the Eifud he says, they shall make. By the Chayshin he says, you shall make. Chayshin Mishpat, a Chayshin Mishpat. Chayshin is, again, that which is on his heart, on his chest, on his breast. Mishpat which also clarified the law. was It should be similar to the material that was used the way the apron was made. That means of... So we have the same materials. It's made out of gold and turquoise wool and purple wool and scarlet red wool and linen that's woven together. That's how you should make it. And here again, the Torah says... You put in the breastplate four rows of stones. And these were very expensive jewels, gems, diamonds. The Torah goes through the four rows. They're called Arba, Turim, four rows. And each row you had three of the stones. So altogether you had three and then six and nine, twelve. And what do you do with these stones? In each of these stones you engraved again the name of one tribe. Here you didn't only have two stones, you had twelve. So each stone... 
can get the name of its tribe. The first stone was Reuven, the second one was Shimon, Levi, Yehud, and you actually engraved the letters of that shame. As the Pasuk continues, Ha'avanim al Shmois B'nai Yisrael. The stones should be engraved with the names of the B'nai Yisrael. Shteim Esrei, 12 names, Al Shmoisam, Pituchei Choisam, Ish Al Shmoi, Tiyan Al-Shenei These were embedded, these were engraved, 12 names, each shevet had one stone that corresponded to that particular tribe. And the last one, of course, was Binyamin. He was the youngest one. And that was the Chayshan. The fascinating thing is, as you just asked, why did you have the same thing in both of the garments? It's not like the other garments had the names of the Jewish people. It would seem like a redundancy. I understand you want the Kohen Gadol to have the names of Klal Yisrael engraved. But twice, on the Ephod and on the Chayshan. On the Eifert, it was just one type of stone, Avnei Shoyham, which on the Choshen happened to be the rock that was given to Yosef. <laughs> Yosef had the Shoyham, the onyx. That was the rock used for Yosef. And that was the two stones used on the Eifert. But you have the 12 names in the Eifert, and then you have the 12 names in the Choshen. But the difference is in the Eifert, it's divided in six and six. In the Choshen, everyone has their own stone, their own space, because you have 12, you don't have two, you have 12. As I said, four rows, and each row you have three. Yes? What does it mean, Kamase Eifel? It should be done, Kamase Eifel, the same fabric, the same materials you used for the Eifel, you also use for the Chayshin. You're asking a question, why does he have to say Kamase Eifel? He's anyway specifying the materials you need for the Chayshin, so it seems redundant to say Kamase Eifel, right? That's a very good question. Great question. Why do you have to repeat it? You're anyway telling me the fabrics that you're using again. You're not just making reference to the effort and we have to infer it. You're saying it explicitly. So why does the Torah have to say it? Good. Another great question. Now here comes another fascinating mitzvah. And at first glance, it would seem like a very strange mitzvah. And please go to your next source. This is the third source on the source sheets. Tetzaveh perik chavches chavches. So here the numbers are easy to remember. Koyach, Koyach, 28, 28, Exodus 28, verse 28. V'yirkesu es ha'choyshen mitaboisov el tabois ha'efoid b'fsil t'cheles liyos al'cheshev ha'efoid. Now it's time to tie, to connect the choyshen with its rings to the rings of the ephod using a turquoise thread to connect the two. The choshen, the breastplate, should never be dislocated or removed from the ephod. And if you'll see in the picture, you'll see what they did. You would think that the breastplate, how do most people have something staying on their chest or their heart? It's called a necklace, right? I don't have to... Uh, it, hangs. It's a it hangs, it's a necklace. That's what the choshen was. So you would think you would have a necklace around Aaron's neck, the Kohen Gadol, and this would allow the breastplate to hang. That's not what happened, the Torah says. The Choshen remained suspended because it was connected to the Aphite. So if you see in the picture, you'll see that the Aphite, the apron, when it comes up on the two shoulders, there's two rings on the top. Those two rings have a thread inside of it. Those two threads of turquoise now extend downward to the chest, to the torso of the Kohen Gadol, and they connect to the two rings on the top of the Chayshin, and that holds the Chayshin on top. 
If you go to the bottom of the Chayshin, you'll see again two rings. These are called Tabais HaChayshin. And again, there's a turquoise thread in each of them. And they go downward and they, ta- they are tied to the rings on the Cheshava Eifert, on the gartel of the apron. And this allows the Chayshin to remain fully uh, fastened. Fastened, that's the word. Fastened to the apron. The Torah says, For example, if it wouldn't be tied on the bottom, then the bottom of the breastplate would sway back and forth, even though it would still be connected on the top. But that's forbidden. It can't move from the heifet. If it would be connected on the bottom, not connected on the top, it also wouldn't work. It had to be, obviously, it had to be fastened tightly on the top and on the bottom. So when the Kayan Gadol put on his garments, the Chayshin and the Eifert were always not just connected, not just near each other, but they were tightly fastened to each other, that the Chayshin never moved away from the Eifert. As Rashi says, it was never nivdal, it was never misaligned, it was never separate, it never even moved a little to the right, to the left, off-center, off-balance, it was always tied <coughs> strongly and powerfully to the Eifert. The Rambam, in the next source, formulates this halacha lamaisa, practical law, Rambam Hilchas Kleya Miktash Perik Tes. This is Maimonides, the laws of the vessels of the Beis HaMiktash, chapter 9. Just see how he defines it practically. You take chains, which weren't chains made out of metal, but chains made out of, so this called chains, but basically it was, it was connecting, a connecting instrument, some form of a sharsheres, sharsheres is like a shalshelis, like a, a connecting instrument that goes from the rings on the shoulders of the apron. Remember, the apron came up on the shoulders, and it went down till the rings of the choshen on the top. So they should experience dveikus, so that the two garments become interlocked or interconnected. Dveikus, which means they cleave to each other. Quoting the Pasuk, of course, in Tetzava, the Choshen shall never move away from the Eifet. And the Rambam says, this is one of the 365 prohibitions. We know that there are 365 mitzvahs loises that were given to the Jewish people. 365 things that the blueprint of Hashem for the Jew and for the world deems these things forbidden. One of them is, What does that mean practically? Somebody who decides to move the chayshim from the eifet. There's different types of yetzaharas in the world. One of them apparently is, somebody may be moved, I don't know why, but somehow this guy doesn't like the position of the chayshim. So he's going to move away the chayshim from the eifet. Allow it to sway. Umefarik chiburan. And he's going to undo this intricate connection between the two. Derech Kilkul, in a way that he wants to ruin it. Sometimes a person makes a mistake. Obviously, these things happen. We make mistakes. But if it's done intentionally in order to ruin this connection, like there's the penalty of lashes. Now, practically speaking, to get such a penalty wasn't easy because you had to have witnesses, and the witnesses had to warn the person, and the person had to be warned not only that you're not allowed to do it, but the consequences, and then the person had to acknowledge verbally to the witnesses that he or she understands everything they said, and they're still doing it, and then they have to do it within three or four seconds, so you can't say that they forgot about it, there was just a senior or senile moment. So practically speaking, it was almost uh, impossible to get Malchus, because if you really did it this all, you had to be crazy, and if you were crazy anyway, couldn't get punished. 
So it was really very difficult. But that's not the point. The point is that it's a serious prohibition with a serious penalty. So that so you think that the breastplate was hanging from the neck, like a necklace? No way. No. It had to be connected to the aphid. It had to be fastened on both sides. And that's the way that the chayshen was carried by the kohen gadol every single day during the avoida. And now the obvious question is, what's very good. What's the big deal, right? What's the big deal if the chayshen sways a little bit from the aphid? To the point that we say it's one of the mitzvahs loisus. Just like a Jew is not allowed to eat blood and not allowed to eat pork and not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. I mean, there's different levels of penalties. But this is... Uh, Isser, it's one of the prohibitions in Tayyid, and the question is, why? Go ahead. How it's attached on the top. Is there as much description on how it's attached on the bottom? Yes, yes. In the source sheets, I didn't put in all the verses, but if you look up Parshas Tetzava, the Tayyid is very detailed about how the aphid was made, how it's attached on the top, how it's attached on the bottom, and Rashi is very thorough in explaining it. And today's Chumashim, they have a lot of pictures to make it easier for the reader, because when you just read the Chumash and Rashi, you know, you have to use your imagination. It's not always easy to imagine it, but like these pictures and many others, many Chumashim have the pictures. But here it's actually pretty clear. It's pretty good here. Yeah. You want to know if he slipped it off in the evening when he, uh, when he went home? The question is, how did he get out of it each night? He went home at night, and then he put it on in the morning before he started the Avaidah. That's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> did he just slip it? Did, did he untie it or did he? Uh... Right, right. You want to know if at night he was allowed to open up the bottom. So means during the avoida, while, while he was dressed with it. It's interesting. Yeah, I have to research. It probably says somewhere exactly how it happened. So in summation, before we get to the next step, we discussed the fact that the names of the Jewish people are on both garments, but not on the other ones, only on these two, which is interesting. On one, you have 12. On the other one, you have two stones. We discussed the fact that the ephod and the chayshin are the only two garments that have to be connected in such a way because the pants were pants and the shirt was a shirt and the gartel was over it. Obviously, the gartel tightened the shirt and then you had a robe that was self-contained. But the ephod and the chayshin had to be connected together to the point that we discussed the fact that by the aphid it says you sh- they shall make, by the chayshin it says you shall make. We discussed the fact that by the chayshin he makes sure to say it should be made just like the aphid, and all of these materials are, are introduced both in the aphid and in the chayshin. Now here, before we go to the next step to understand the deeper meaning of all of this and the relevance of all of this, when the Torah says you should make the aphid with gold, turquoise, purple, scarlet, and linen, how exactly did it work? So Rashi explains, and our sages knew this, this was the tradition how it was done, that each thread was interwoven from six. In order for the thread to be powerful and solid, it wasn't just a single thread. It was interwoven from six. So you had, when you had a thread of turquoise, you took six threads of turquoise, and you... you uh, you wove it together, beefed it together, so it was, that a, it was a solid thread. The same you did with the argaman, with the purple wool. The same you did with the scarlet red wool. And the same you did with the linen. So essentially, and then you took them all, and then you interwove them all together. So you had four times six. So you had six turquoise, six 
purple wool, six scarlet red wool, and six linen. So that's six, 12, 18, and 24. But the Torah says Yosef had gold. So you had a thread of gold in each one, a sick, thick thread of gold in each one. So you had a thread of gold that you put in to the six threads of the Tchelas, Argaman, Telas, Shani, and Sheish. So altogether, each thread had 28 because it had 24 from the six times four, four times six. But in each one of the four, you had a thread of gold. So each chut, each thread was, the strand really was comprised of 28 strands. Seven strands of each, if you want, yes. So that would be seven, 14, 21, and 28. Yes. And the choshen was made exactly the same way. And of course, 28 is chafches, kayach, which is why I mentioned that the pasuk about the choshen and the ephod are in perik chafches, and the pasuk about connecting them is chafches, chafches. It's not random, as we shall see in the continuation of the class. I'm just inserting that into one of the exhibits to uh, hold in your brain, Be'ezer Hashem. The explanation, or at least one of the explanations of this, we find in the writings of the Arizal. There's a sefer called Tamei HaMitzvahs, the reason for mitzvahs, that was transcribed by Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the great student of the Arizal. He was the rabbi in Damascus, and then he came to Tzvas to learn by the Arizal in the 1500s. And in his sefer, Tamei HaMitzvahs, on the mitzvahs Choshen Va'efed, he discusses this, albeit in very mystical, Kabbalistic terms. There's also a sefer called Panim Yafis, a commentary on Chumash that was written by Reb Pinchas Horowitz, who was the Rav of Frankfurt, Frankfurt in Germany, Frankfurt am Main. He was a student of the Maggid of Mizrich. He's known as the Baal Hafla. Hafla is Harav Pinchas Levi Ish Horowitz. It's a commentary on Meseches Ksuvas and Sefer Amakna and Kedushin. But he has a commentary on Chumash called Ponim Yafis, the beautiful face, beautiful countenance. And there in Parshas Tetzave, he also has a long explanation about this. Then there's a sefer called Eir HaTayra, authored by the Tzamach Tzedek, who was the grandson of the Balatanya. And there in Parshish Tzav has a long explanation. <coughs> and I also myself had a pr- the privilege of hearing an amazing explanation that brings it all together, which I heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe many years ago, Tavshin Memches, Chaf Aleph Adar, the 21st of Adar, 1988, which was also Parshish Tzav. So, Combined from all of these sources, let's take a look what Arizal says. It's your next source, one, two, three, four, fifth source in your source sheets. The Aphoid parallels the Aspaklaria Shaina Meira versus Khoshin Aspaklaria Hamira. Aspaklaria Hamira means translucent. Glass or non-translucent glass. In other words, sometimes there is a material or an item that is translucent. It allows for that which is inside to shine through it. That's called aspaklaria hameira. Aspaklaria she'ena meira means it's opaque. It's not so clear. It shines through it, but it's not so clear. It says that's the eifert versus the chash. The achar, one is the back. The ponim, one is the face. Mitzad ha'ponim huzavu chashen. From the side of the face, this is called the chayshin, which he calls the eramp in a small face. On the back, it's called eifite. What is Darizal referring to? What does he mean? Physically, the chayshin and the eifite were situated in two very different places in the body. The chayshin, of course, was in the higher part of the Kayin Gadol's body. 
It was on top of his chest, on top of his torso, on top of his heart. It's called alev, on his heart, alibay. The aphoid, of course, was on the lower part of his body. As I said, it began below the waist or by the waist, and it extended all the way down to the bottom of the feet, to the sole of the Kohen Gadol. Now remember, in the Beis HaMikdash and the Mishkan, they served barefoot. Nobody wore socks and nobody wore shoes. It was just their bare feet connected. Like Hashem told Moshe, take your shoes off your feet because this is holy soil. There was no need and it was actually not good to have shoes to create a chatzitza, to interpose, to create a partition. So you say the ephod went down all the way to the bottom. It was literally till the bottom because he didn't have socks and shoes at the Avaida. So the choshen is on the higher part of the body and the ephod is on the lower part of the body. That's number one. Number two, the choshen is in the front and the ephod is in the back. The choshen, of course, when you look at the Kohen Gadol and you're looking at his face, you see right there in the center of his body the choshen. The ephod, you had to go to the back to see it because the apron was not covering the front, it was covering the back, as Rashi says. Like when people wear an apron, it only covers the backside. And it also began on the lower part of the body. That's why the Arizal says, This is the face, and this is the back. What do they represent now? Each of the garments was not just a uniform that should be charming and interesting and appealing and even dazzling in its beauty. It was also dazzling in its beauty. As the Pasuk says, it was lekavad, it was sephoris, it was glorious, it was harmonious. But it also represented a certain theme, a certain energy. So the Chayshin and the Eifred actually represented a paradox. The higher part of life and the lower part of life. The higher part of the body, the lower part of the body. The front of a person's body and the back of a person's body. In a person's life, you could say there are parts of life that you will call may be the higher parts of life, the more refined, the more spiritual, the more sensitive, the more delicate, the more exalted, the more glorious, the more ethical, the more spiritual, the more sublimated. And then there are parts of a person's life that are lower. There are the parts of life, and I don't only mean lower physically, but they're connected to baser components of a person's life. Parts of a person's life that may be darker, more opaque, uh, more challenging, sometimes even lowly. Different parts people have, people have in their lives. Let's see the Rosh Tevis of Ephod and Choshen. This comes from a Sefer, Imre Noya. Ephod is Aleph, Fe, Vav, Dalad, your next source. Tehillim, Perik, Nun, Aleph. This is the famous capital in Tehillim. Some say it in Kriyash, Mashal, Amita. Some say it after Tikkun Chatzos. It's the Mizmar that David sang after the story of Bathsheba. And David HaMelech says there, I'm going to teach the sinners your ways so that those who transgressed can return to you. Take a look at the first letters of these words. What do you have? Aphoid. Alamda, Eifod is Aleph, Fei, Vav, Dalet. Alamda, Foishim, Drachecha, Vachatayim. doesn't even have the end, Elecha Yeshuv. I will teach those who sin your ways and those who transgress. And that's the end. Aleph, Fei, Vav, and Dalet. Alamda, Foishim, Drachecha, Vachatayim. What about Choshen? Choshen is made up of three letters. Chis, Ches, Shin, and Nun. 
For this we have the Pasuk in Tehillim, Tzadik Zion, chapter 97 in Tehillim. And he said Friday night, up in the Kapitlach, leading up to Lechadoidi. Friday night we say six Kapitlach of Tehillim, Lechuneranana, Shiru, which correspond to the six days of the week. David HaMelech says, Oy have adenoi sinura, shoymer nafshiz chasidov miad roshayim yatzila. Those who love Hashem loathe negativity. He guards, he protects the souls of his pious ones, rescues them from the hands of the wicked. Shoymer nafshiz chasidov is the acronym of choyshen. Shin, shoymer, nun, nafshiz ches chasidov. So if Eifer is associated with Alam the Foyshim Drachecha, those who transgress, those who sin, those who miss the target, and Choyshim is Shoymer Nafshiz Chasidov, protecting the souls of the pious ones. In fact, Choyshim, as it says in Svarim, is the same numerical value as Mashiach. Choyshim is 358, Shin Choyshim is Ches, Shin Nun is 358, and Mashiach is also Shin and Mem is 340, plus Yud is 350, plus Ches 8. Why? What's the connection? What's the connection between the two? Because it really represents two different parts of a person's life. My higher life, my lower life. The life that's associated with my front, and the life that's associated with my acharayim, with my back. Very few people can be defined as exclusively being a chayshin or being an aphite. Most of us vacillate between the two. People have very ideal, lofty ambitions, and sometimes people have darker sides to their personality. Right? Well, they call it the good and the bad and the ugly. We celebrate moments of, of deep brightness and luminescence. Our face is shining, but we sometimes have to battle with difficulties and challenges and darkness. Sometimes life is a journey of serenity, a cruise through tranquil waters in a beautiful, serene sea or lake. But sometimes I need to navigate storms and tsunamis and hurricanes. I'm in a sea and the sea is extremely tumultuous and I feel startled. I feel overwhelmed. I feel confused. Sometimes I find myself not a cru- as a cruise in a sea. I'm not cruising in a sea, but I find myself on the front lines of a battlefield. There are moments that a person feels their destiny or their vocation or their purpose with great clarity and certainty, and there's a lightness, pun intended. There's light and lightness in their psyche. There's a lot of hope. The heart is alive, the heart is fiery and alive, there's passion, there's wholesomeness, there's deep connection with myself, with Hashem, with my loved ones, with other people. But there's moments that I search for my place in the world. I hear the question, Ayeka, the question that Hashem asks Adam after he gets lost existentially and spiritually. Where are you? There's moments I'm overtaken by guilt or by, by deep shame or by darkness, where a person is disturbed and distracted by internal or external challenges. I may have deep fears, or anxiety, or wounds that I don't know how to heal, or they're not easy to heal. Or a person may have tremendous tension in their life that they feel in their body. Some people struggle with with serious, serious addiction, or other forms of, of challenges that really 
slept me down. Some people struggle with, with deep mental anguish or, or mental illness that can take me down into very low places. Sometimes I could find myself in, in quagmire. Sometimes I find myself stuck in quicksand or in mud. It's interesting. The, the aphoid has a gartel. The choshen doesn't have a gartel. It's a breastplate. The aphoid has a gartel, and that's how it stayed connected to the body. The Torah calls it cheshev ha-aphoid. Cheshev is the words used for the belt, for the girdle, for the gartel. In Yirmiya, there's a very powerful pasuk. Yirmiya Perik Yud Gimel Pasuk Yud Aleph. Chapter 13 of Yirmiya is a very, very sharp chapter. You could call it a bleak chapter if you want. But there's a pasuk there, a very, very telling pasuk. The Navi says in the name of Hashem, Ki kasher yidbak ha'ezer al-masne ish, kein hidbak t'yeh kol beis Yisrael, v'as kol beis Yehudin u'madinoi liyos li la'am al-hashem al-hilol al-sehilol al-sefaris v'loy shameyo. Just as a person, takes an azer, an azer is a belt, a girdle, a gartle, and clings it close to his or her waist, to the musne ish, to the loins. That's what the gartle does. You, you tie that belt and it's clinging, it's clinging toughly there. He says, bakti, God says, that is how I connected the Jewish people to me, like a gartle. I wanted they should be my nation, my people, for fame, for glory, for splendor, but they did not obey. Because when a, mo- when a person is in that space of aphoid, the person needs to hold on very strongly. I have to connect myself very strongly because I'm in a difficult place. I'm confronting challenging moments. I'm confronting lower parts, what they call the lower angels of the human psyche. I'm not in touch with my full presence, with my face. The back is a metaphor for that which is not capturing the full pnimius, is pnimius, the full depth, the full intensity, the full presence of the human life. So a person needs to really hold on very tightly. Again, when I'm traveling through serene waters, it's a tranquil cruise, I don't have to hold on tightly. But when the storms threaten to overwhelm me and become a shipwreck, physically or conceptually, I need that gartel to be able to hold on extremely, extremely tight. The word cheshev, is also from the word machshava. Cheshev is a thought. Because thoughts connect you to places. You know, we sometimes obsessively think about things. We call it internal mental chatter. Remember that your thought never shuts down. People are always thinking. You may not realize that you're thinking, but you're thinking. And even when you're thinking about the fact that you're not thinking, trust me, you're thinking. And to find that stillness in thought is very difficult. The Shem Tev once said something very powerful. He said that sometimes the whole avoida that's demanded of a person at a particular moment is to, to deal with a thought. You know, sometimes we look at life and say it's all about actions. And yes, actions reign supreme. But he says, sometimes my entire service of God is to deal with a certain machshava. Really to get hold of a certain thought, to, to deal with a certain thought, to confront a certain thought, to have compassion for a thought, to, to cultivate a thought, to, to substitute a thought with another way of thinking. So that's Cheshev. At this moment, I really need Machshav. I need my thoughts to be able to be worked out, to be able to identify where the thoughts are coming from and where other thoughts are coming from. Take a look at the Gematria for a moment of the two. When you look at Aphite, this is the source above Yermio. Aphite, Imakailul, the Gematria, Alekim. 
The word ephod, aleph, fei, dalet, is pei, dalet, and aleph is 85. 85 with the kailo, kailo means sometimes you include the whole word as one more. It's 86, which is the numerical value of Hashem's name, Elikim. Aleph, lamed, hey, yud, mem is 86. It's also the numerical value of the word hateva, which means the nature. Aphoid with a vav, aphoid with a vav is yud and hey and vav and hey together with the name adna. Aleph, dalad, nun, yud. Yud, ke, vav, ke is 26. Aleph, Dalad, Nun, Yud is 50, plus 10 is 60, plus 5 is 65. So together you have 91. That's Aphid. Aleph, Fe, Vav, Dalad. Without a Vav, it's 85. With a Vav, 85 and 6 is 91. That's together Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, and Aleph, Dalad. What's the significance of this? Hashem has different names. Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke represents the name that is the core of existence. Yud, He, Vav, He is Haya, Haya, He was, He is, and will be. Hashem, yud hey vav hey represents existence. When somebody says, uh, I don't believe in God, I ask them, okay, do you believe in existence? Of course. So you believe in God. We don't have, an, in Judaism, we don't call God God. We call God existence. You don't believe in existence? Everybody believes in existence. <laughs> so you believe in God, you just call it existence. But that's yud kei vav kei. It's the organic, it's the essence of existence. It's the reality of reality. Or do you believe in reality? Of course I believe in reality. So reality, that's Hashem. It's the reality of reality. And everyone is part of reality. There's nobody, is this table part of reality? Am I part of reality? I hope so. Try to be. (laughs) It's good to be part of reality. Part of reality means you're an aspect of Hashem. You're part of reality. He's the reality of reality. That's Yutke Vavke. Elikim, Hateva, the word Teva means Tubu. When something drowns, it's called teviyah, it's covered up by the water. In other words, that the organic essence of existence is eclipsed, it's submerged. Tubu v'yamsuf, that's the word teva. The word teva means, it's all divine, but it could be submerged, it could be concealed. And that's the gematria of 86, which is alekim, that's aphite. Aphite with a vav, so you have the vav, there is a flow, but it's havaya with adna. Alev dalad nun yud is adayshem, which means my master. There's a difference between Yud Kei Vav Kei and Alev Dalad Nun Yud. When you call God existence, it's not my master, it's existence, it's me. I am part of existence. My master could be understood as separateness. I have a master, and my master tells me what to do. So there's two types of mitzvahs. There's understanding of mitzvah as Hashem speaks to me, and understanding of mitzvah as Hashem speaks through me. It's, and, and both are real. There's the element of Adnan, there's moments that I feel I could feel separateness and I need my master to tell me what to do, to tell me what not to do. That's the concept of Adon. Yudke Vavke is Haya Haiva Whatever was, whatever is, whatever will be, the summation of all of it and beyond, that is divine energy. So the mitzvah is not God talking to me, it's talking through me, it's talking through the essence of existence. <clears throat> it's not for today's shear, but that's one of the differences, what's explained between masculinity and femininity. Men are commanded, at least with us, chassidus, the pious thing is to wear a yarmulke. Yarmulke, they say, comes from two words, yare, yarmulke. You know what it is? Yare mekel. It represents yere shemaim, that there's something above my brain, there's something above my head. So shouldn't a woman wear a yarmulke? <laughs> He's saying you wear a shaitl, it's hard enough, you don't need a yarmulke also. <laughs> a spitzel. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Okay, so let's put it a little more eloquently, if I may. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I'm just going to define it in, in words, but beautiful, yes. I, I didn't mean what you said wasn't eloquent. I just mean I want to put it in the context of what we're saying. There's the concept of a yamulka which is above me. That's one concept. That's called ad, adna, alav, dalad, nun, yud. But then there is the concept that the very being is a yamulka. The very being is a manifestation of the divine. And that's the concept of yud, hey, vav, hey. And that's generally the difference between the masculine component of Judaism and the feminine component of Judaism. So an aphoid, which is begematria elekim without a vav, or with a vav, it's yud, ke, vav, ke, coming into adna, it's the way the person, and this is on a pretty lofty level, but it already teaches us that we're dealing with the lower part of existence where there could be separateness, where there could be detachment, and therefore the person is summoned and invited to understand the concept of adnos, to understand the concept of mastery. So it's the way Yudke Vavke trickles through and is filtered and processed through the name Adna. That's why Eifoid is the gematria, not just of Yudke Vavke, but of Adna. Choshen, we said, is the gematria of Mashiach. That's the concept of redemptiveness. Hashem. Where the pnimius, the core godliness and holiness of a person emerges, and that's why it deals with the higher part of the person. Versus the aphoid, which deals with the lower part of the person and the back of the person. Now, if you'll take a look in the next source sheet, the second to the last, Yalkut Shemayni Shmois. Moshe didn't want to take his job to go to Egypt and liberate the Jewish people. I have an older brother, Aaron. Hashem says, don't worry. Aaron Achicha Halevi is going to come to greet you. He's going to see you and he's going to rejoice in his heart. Now those are important words because usually an older brother, for Aaron to see Moshe, his baby brother, become Moshe Rabbeinu, it could be difficult. People are people. It's easy to get jealous and envious. So Aaron is a good man. He may greet Moshe verbally and tell him, wow, I'm so proud of you, Moshe. You're the Navi. But the question is, what's happening in my heart? You know, sometimes I had an uncle, his name was Reb Shmuel Levitin. So he used to say, it says in Shulchan Aruch that the Chazan for Yamim Noirayim should have a Lev Nishbar. Should have a humble heart, a tzibrochina hearts. So he used to say, I like the chazan for shachras. I like, why? He said, he has a lev nishbar. Why does he have a lev nishbar? Because he thinks to himself, ich wot gedav david a musaf. <laughs> I should have david musaf, because musaf is much more long, much longer, everybody already comes to shul by musaf. So he says, I like the chazan for shachras. He has a lev nishbar. <laughs> I should have david musaf. Even if you're gracious about it, but deep down, you know, so Egbert the Hearts, it's hard, you know. Why not me? Why not me? I'll smile, I'll be nice, I'm a gentleman, I'm not a chayera, I'm not going to show my envy. So Hashem doesn't tell, doesn't say, Moshe Aaron is going to be nice. In his heart, he's going to have simcha. Oh, that's Aaron. He's going to celebrate in his heart Moshe's success. So the Medrash says something fascinating. The heart that celebrated the greatness, the success of his brother, that's the heart that wears the chayshin with the urim and the tumim. In the chayshin, in the breastplate, we know it was folded, and there was the urim and tumim. Urim means light, urim, it illuminated. Tumim means metamim, it made wholesome. That was in the chayshin. The Kayin Gadol had that ability to illuminate difficult situations and 
to bring wholesomeness and completion to dilemmas and doubts that the Jewish people had over history. This was all in the Chayshim. Spiritually it means, and it was Hashem's name inside, because the Chayshim represents that aloof, that state of aloofness and sublimity where the person is filled with Urim, filled with light and filled with Tumim, filled with a sense of wholesomeness. That's Shoimer Nafsha is Chasidov, Begematria Mashiach Chayshim. With the Aphid, represents a completely different side of life. Now, in life, we often tend to separate between the two. And it's very natural. We tend to create a gulf, to create a, a partition, a mechitza, a dichotomy between the two. There's a voice inside of us, or a voice that we bequeath from others, or a voice that we share with ourselves, that tends to separate the two. And it gives me two options. Either it tells me to escape to my chayshen, to my shoymer nafshes chasidov world, or it causes me to gravitate, and that's a good word, gravity, because it's the power of gravity that schleps you down, so it's actually a good word, to gravitate towards the world of the eifet. So the Torah comes and gives us a fundamental mitzvah. In life, you're not allowed to separate the Chayshin from the Eifet. Not only do they have to be connected to each other, but they have to be fastened tightly to the point that they're always functioning together. It's not that they're both there and you acknowledge them both. It's almost, they're not one garment, they're two. There's a Chayshin and there's an Eifet. And they have a different design and they're situated in a different place. But nonetheless, they never sway from each other. They're always f- fully aligned with each other. They're always fully, as the Rambam says, Yidbuku, they're with Dvekus. They're always connected, always integrated. What does that represent? It represents the fact that even the lowest parts of my life, even the darkest parts of my life, even the parts of my life that are connected literally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to what you would call my chelakatachtayim, my lower components, my darker components, I have to connect it with the Chayshin. I have to connect it with the highest, most sublime, most spiritual dimensions of myself. There is now let it be any Hevdal, any, any Havdalah, we call it Havdalah, Hamavdal, any separation between the two. I have to create a very deep kinship or intimate relationship between my Chayshin and my Eifet. In other words, I need to learn to integrate both parts of my I, both parts of my being, without escaping or fleeing to any one of the elements. Because what happens is, Titus says, sometimes you want to flee. You want to escape to your higher self, to your higher dimension, and completely forget, repress, forget, deny your lower self. The challenge in that is, that when my lower angels emerge, it can really, really schlep me down. And it could schlep me down in a very, very dangerous way. Because yes, I fled, and as long as I'm in this higher space, everything works well. But when the lower dimensions emerge, what happens? I don't have the tools, I don't have the consciousness, I don't have the resources to deal with it. You know, as a Kala once, uh, Kala and Hassan once told me after they got married, they said, our Shidduch is the perfect Shidduch because we never, ever disagree. Ever. 
So I said, I want to suggest that maybe tonight you could find something to disagree about. They said, why would you suggest it? I said, I'll tell you. Because if Shalom bias is based on the fact that a Jewish husband and wife never disagree, unless you're both saints and you're malachim, and I know, I don't know her, but I know you, you're not a saint. You're a regular guy. <laughs> she also wasn't a saint, but I couldn't say it. <laughs> uh, that was the first disagreement, that they're not saints. <laughs> that was a disagreement with me. I didn't need them to disagree with me. I needed them. <laughs> I said, because, because the concept of shalom, peace, means when there's two and you synthesize them. If there's only one opinion, you don't need shalom. The problem is, there's going to be a disagreement. We need to learn to repair. When something is not broken, it's wonderful. But when there's a rupture, how do you repair, from the, how do you repair the rupture? When there's a shvir, when there's a bro- brokenness, the kaihela shleim amalach says in the I have seen that wisdom has an advantage over folly, like light has an advantage over darkness. And the Zoyer says, only Shleimah Melech sees this. I'm the only one who knows this. Everyone else thinks that folly, stupidity is better than wisdom, and darkness is better than light. So the Balatanya explains, he wasn't saying there's an advantage of wisdom over folly and light over darkness. You don't need Shlema Melech for that. There's an advantage to wisdom that comes from folly and there's an advantage to light that comes from darkness. To the light that's born from the darkness, from the struggle. So if I don't have the tools to confront all of the components of my body and of myself, when that emerges, when I land... <laughs> From my escapism, what happens when I sober up from my spiritual inebriation? I may stumble and stumble in a very, very serious way. On the other hand, there's the other tendency. And that is I want to run only to my darker parts. Some people gravitate to their darker parts and they deny the holiness that's inside of them. They deny the beauty, the glory, the innocence, the idealism, the selflessness, the godliness, the transcendence that exists in them. And what happens then is the person decides, I have to be honest. This is who I am. I am not a heavenly human being. I'm a very earthy, base, lowly. Sometimes I could say I'm a grotesque. This is, I'm a grotesque human being. Yes, my lower angels dominate and that is who I am. And that leaves the person craving. That leaves the person thirsty. Thirsty for meaning, thirsty for purpose, thirsty for their true essence, thirsty for their, their true inner glory. It means I have to master the art of integration, the art of synthesis, the art of shalom. Make peace, and again I use the word peace meticul- uh, uh, intentionally, make peace with the two pieces inside of me. Make peace with the fact that the Choshen and the Ephoid both constitute the very fabric and the very purpose of my existence. A major part of existence is to confront my darkness and to transform it into light, to confront my divisiveness and to transform it into harmony, to create harmony from the diversity, from the colorfulness 
of the human psyche, to create harmony from the chaos and the conflict into human psyche, and from chaos turn it into a mosaic, into a tapestry, into a rainbow that is comprised of different colors and different paradoxes, just like the Aphid and the Chayshin were made up of so many different fabrics. But the truth is it goes one step deeper. The Torah doesn't just say you need an Aphid and you need a Chayshin, and you need both and you need to learn about both of them. The Torah says something much more than that. Much more than this. And as we learned in the Rambam, when somebody does move away the Chayshin from the Eifet, it's one of the 365 prohibitions in the Torah, which means it's basically defying a fundamental rule of reality. Because when Torah says that something is forbidden for a Jew, it's not just saying it's forbidden as a commandment. It's actually describing the reality. An example, if I go to a nutritionist and the nutritionist takes a blood test or I go to a geneticist and he examines my genetic makeup and he or she writes me, writes for me a memo or a paper and says, these foods, what do they call it, superfoods? Superfoods, yeah? And then there's pariva foods. Yeah, it's all right. And then there's lethal foods. I just made up a word. What's the official one? Huh? Off the chart. Doesn't belong on a chart. So somebody's going to come home and say, who does this nutritionist or geneticist think they are to tell me what to do? And the answer is, they didn't tell you what to do. They just described to you the reality of your brain, the reality of your body, the reality of your organism, the reality of your blood type, the reality of your chemical, physiological, genetic makeup. Now you can choose. You can choose to build that organism, to embrace it, and to live a lifestyle that will keep it Hashem, as healthy as possible so you can live the most optimal life physically, psychologically, emotionally, etc. with the most energy, or, or Khalil the opposite. Again, a mitzvah is the same thing. We often translate it as a commandment. That's from the perspective of Alev Dalad Nun Yud, the Yamalka above me. But from the perspective of Yud and Hey and Vav Hey, it's much more than a commandment. It's describing reality. I can tune into reality or I can tune out of reality. I could make believe I'm part of reality, or I could make believe I'm not part of reality. A fish can do the same thing, but not for long. A fish could make believe that there's no law that it has to be in water, but it can only do it for a few seconds. But humans are more creative. I could make believe <laughs> that I don't have to be in water for a longer time, and it could last, and my, my brilliant brain can adapt to this function. That's what we do. So when the Torah says, there's an isur, it's, whenever you see the word prohibition, it's describing the inner reality of life. That to move away the chayshin from the eifah, somehow undermines the inner structure, the inner rhythm of life. But why? Because the Torah is saying, the truth is there's no chayshin without an eifah. And there's no eifah without a chayshin. Not just I need to integrate. There's no chayshin. If you want a chayshin, you need the eifah right there. And if you want an eifah, you need the chayshin right there. Which means the lower parts of my life are not the tragedy of my life. It's not like I have to make shalom, this is it, everybody has their pekel, as we say, everybody has their tsaris, everybody has their struggles. That's not the way to look at it. That's a very superficial way of looking at it. The lowest parts of my life are actually my pathways. They are the drachim. They are my pathways through which I will discover my mission in life, 
my purpose in life, my raison d'etre, they will allow me to become aware who I am and what is at least part of my tafkid, my mission, my shlichus in the world. In other words, you never have to be afraid of any part of yourself. You never have to amputate emotionally or spiritually any part of yourself because any part that comes up has meaning. It has a spark. It has a purpose. It's here to create awareness. Connect it to your chayshen and you will find your Mashiach. Connect your eifah to your chayshen and you will find your own internal gu'ula, state of consciousness. There's an old story, it's one of these classics, but it's, it's still good, <laughs> as all classics are. There was this old Chinese woman who was very, very poor, and she would go every day with her two buckets on her shoulders and go to the river and fill up the buckets with water and bring it home. So they had water. One bucket was whole. The other one was full of cracks. So by the time she came home every day, one bucket was filled with water and the other one was half empty because on the way home from the river to her home up the slope, half of the water trickled out of the bucket. After years of feeling like a loser, the cracked bucket, the cracked bucket opened its mouth and started to cry and weep. You know, why am I the loser? Here my colleague near me comes home every day with a full bucket of water and I'm 50% empty. You know, see the bucket as half full, that's me. I could never be successful, and I'm always comparing myself to my colleague, and I feel like such a valueless loser, a shmata. So the Chinese woman responds to this bucket and says, tomorrow, when we come back up from the river to the house, I want you to be able to look below yourself and see what is on your path. And tomorrow, as they're walking back, this cracked bucket notices that on the path from the river to the home, There are beautiful, beautiful flowers, lilies and roses and other extraordinary flowers. And the woman says, you know, when I purchased you, I knew about your flaws. So on the path home, I planted all of these flowers. And every day when we go home, you water these flowers. And over these years, these flowers have given our lives so much fragrance and such an extraordinary aroma and such delight and such ecstasy. Your colleague comes home with a full bucket of water, but there's no flowers planted on that path. And of course, there's a very profound lesson here. It's not that my bucket is cracked, and now the question is how I make peace with it, how I acknowledge it, how I don't run into shame, run away into shame, into denial. It's much deeper than that. When I bought you, when I purchased you, I knew about every crack. And it's those cracks that allow you to create that fragrance that another bucket can't create. So when a person looks at their own life and they see the alam the foishim the eifait, and they see the acherayim, they see a darker or a lower part, or different different elements that I have to deal with within myself, so within my children, or within my marriage, or within my relationships, or within my own psyche, comes the Torah and says lo There's no choshen, there's no mashiach without the eifait. It's precisely the eifait that allows me to water those plants in the world that only I could water because of my flaws, because of my cracks. Look at every single crack you have in your life. And I promise you, if you look at it from a perspective of divine consciousness, not from a perspective of shame and self-loathing and insecurity, you will see that there is something that this person can achieve in this world only because of that crack. There is an awareness that you have. There's a sensitivity that you have. There's a humility that you have. 
There was a Jew once came to the Baal Shem Tev, and he said he wants a Silio Anavi. So the Baal Shem Tev said, it's not for you. You don't need it. He nudged and begged and begged. So he gave him an Avoidah for 10 years. After 10 years, he did everything the Baal Shem Tev said. And he didn't say Leo He comes to the Baal Shem Tev and he says, 10 years down the drain, I did accomplish nothing. He says, what do you mean? So I didn't say Leo Anavi. 10 years that were futile. The Baal Shem Tev says, you accomplished nothing. After 10 years, you became a humble person. <laughs> what is this? You accomplished nothing. You became a humble You realized who you are. You think, you know how priceless that is to be able to know who you are in this world, to be able to know who you're not, to be able to be comfortable in your own skin, to be able to understand what aspirations belong to you, what aspirations don't belong to you, to be able to stop comparing yourself to others. So the aphoid is not just a mistake that I have to overcome. It's not even just an obstacle that I have to somehow make peace with and deal with. It's actually an opportunity. It constitutes the deepest, deepest opportunity for, 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 for growth, for, for spiritual, spiritual prosperity. I think I once shared the Mari Reinayim, Reb Nacham Chernobyla writes, in Parshish Vayishlach, I think it is, the Gemara says in Yuma, Somebody who comes to be purified, Hashem opens up the door for him. Somebody who comes to be tame, if I want to contaminate myself, I'm sorry, somebody who comes to purify himself, Hashem helps him. Somebody who's coming to become Tomei. You want to contaminate yourself? They open the door for him. Hashem doesn't take away free choice. He opens the door. says, says why by Letaher it says Messiah by Letame it says So He says, when somebody is coming to be purified or to purify others, they help him. When somebody is coming to be metame themselves, in other words, when somebody is struggling with something that might contaminate them, a person has to know that this is their entrance. This is their Pesach. This is their entrance to touch the divine. Or as he puts it, when I'm struggling with something that's going to, that could contaminate me, that can derail me, this is my Pesach, as he puts it for Ruach HaKadosh, for divine inspiration. What does that mean? Habalitami is such a nuisance. He's saying, no. If there's something I have to deal with, if I work this through, if I reveal the light in this place, if I bring in divine awareness and higher consciousness into this place, this is Zehashar Lashem Tzadikim Yavayavay. This is my portal. This is my path. I can't enter my path. I can't find my gate. Every person's neshama has their shar, their gate. How do I find my gate? Many people walk into other people's gates. But if I walk into your gate, you know, like in the amusement parks, it starts buzzing. I can't go into your gate. I need to go into my gate. How do I find my gate? Zahashar Lasha. My gate I can only find seeing what I'm struggling with. Seeing what I have to work through. It doesn't necessarily mean it was my choice. But the fact that it wasn't my choice doesn't mean I'm a victim to it. It means that this is part of the gift that were given to me even though it doesn't look like a gift. <laughs> it looks like anything but a gift. But only through this can my chayshin become the chayshin. There's no chayshin without, without an ephod. There's a story, there was a big chassid of the Balatanya, his name was Rabbi Kusiel Liepler, Rabbi Kusha Liepler. And he was a very spiritual Jew, and he once came into his Rebbe, and he said in Yiddish, Rebbe, hakmer arab the linkazite, chop off my left side. 
which was an expression of saying, get rid of my Yetzirah, just chop it off, enough. So the Balatanya went into a meditation, into a dvekus for a few minutes, and he emerged, and he opened his eyes, and he said with a nigin, Va'ata mechaye eskulam shteit, zayem oich mechaye. It says that Hashem gives life to everybody and everything. So he says, we're not going to chop off your left side. We're going to do something much deeper. Give it life. <laughs> Give it chiyus. Hashem gives chiyus to everything. We say every morning in davening, Va'ata mechaye eskulam. You want me to cut out a certain part of you? No. You have to bring life to it. You have to breathe into it. What does that mean? What it means is, everything in a person has real life. There's real oxygen there. Because va'atam Hashem gives it life. It may eclipse what the divine purpose in that is. So that's your goal. Your goal is not to amputate a certain part of yourself. Your goal is va'atam to bring life to it, to bring a real awareness to it, not superficial awareness. Superficial awareness is when I just surrender to a moment of anger, or to a moment of jealousy, or to a moment of temptation, or to a moment of addiction, or to a moment of guilt, or shame, or frustration, or loneliness, or isolation, or freeze, or fight, or flight. That's not acknowledging the inner life of it. That's acknowledging and falling prey to the superficial veneer of it. Va'ata mechaya eskulam, he says, zayem oich mechaya, Bring life to every part of yourself. Bring divine life to every part of yourself. Bring, huh? Even the Yitzhar. Rebav Rama Bulefia. Rebav Rama Bulefia was one of the great Kabbalists. He said, Yutke Vovke is a Rashatevis. Yutke Vovke. Yetzer Hatoiv, Vietzer Hara. Yetzer Hatoiv, Vietzer Hara. The Gemara says in Brochus, the Mishnah says in Brochus, the ninth chapter, Vahaftas Hashem Alekecha Becholavavcha, what's with your whole heart? Bishnei Yitzarecha, with both Yitzar. But here we have to understand the difference. There's something called a Skafia, there's something called a Shapcha. Skafia means to subdue, a Shapcha means to transform. Sometimes I'm not in a position where I could transform. Sometimes I'm only in a position where I could acknowledge with compassion, but I know that this right now I have to go away from. Or right now, I can't talk about it. For example, let's talk in, in, a, in a marriage, shalom bias. A husband and a wife get into some disagreement and some, one of them is overtaken with anger. Just feeling a lot, a lot of anger. They may not be in a position where they could see what's behind the anger and talk about the pain that's behind the anger because anger is a secondary emotion. Behind anger, 95% of time is pain. I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry because I don't want to face my pain. It's, I'm pain, I'm lonely. But I can't. At this moment, I have to say, I'm in a very difficult situation. I need to be quiet. I need to be quiet. I may need a few hours. I may need a day. person is experiencing a tremendous Yetzirah to something, like Yosef HaTzadik, I have to just run away. I have to run away. To go and transform it right now, I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to be pulled down. That's called Iskafia. I have to be able to acknowledge with compassion and say, right now, this is not something I can transform. On a deeper level, there's something called ishapcha. Ishapcha means realizing that there's a divine, hidden light beneath the shell, beneath the klippa, beneath the husk. Even the Yetzirah is called klippa, which means it's hiding something. Like teva, tuvu biyamsuf. Inside, there's something deeper. And if you look for something deeper, you're going to find a lot of good gems. You'll find a lot of avne shayim. You're going to find annex stones that go over the shoulders 
and go even higher than the Chayshin. And that the Chayshin has to be attached to the Eifat. Not only the Eifat has to be attached to the Chayshin. So for this he said, Zayim Eich The Kotzke Rebbe once said, he said in Yiddish, As metzebrecht ataiva, vert von eine zwei. When you break a craving, when you break a taiva, you made from one two. <laughs> it's like when you break, you break a glass, you don't have one piece, you don't get rid of it, you have two pieces. <laughs> and now they're both hazardous, right? I cut a piece of cake, so now I have two pieces of cake. So he said, when you break your taiva, you didn't get rid of it. Oh, you got rid of it, you broke it. No, no, you just made two. And if you break it again, now you have four. <laughs> Ah, so what did he mean? You never break your taiva. No. You have to understand your taiva. Don't break, you understand it. Because when you understand it, the Baal Shem Tov once said, when a thief breaks into my house, one thing I can do is start screaming, Ah! And the thief will run away and he'll come back tomorrow night. He said, another Eitzah, I don't know if you should try this in your house. He said, another Eitzah, sit down with him and I understand why he's stealing. And then he'll never come back again. One second. So now, but sometimes I have to scream. Yeah, sometimes I have to scream. But the purpose is not to scream. The purpose is to work with it. Even when you're screaming, don't scream from a place of denial and amputation. You have to understand what's going on. You have to appreciate that this is part of my reality. And right now, the best I can do is disengage from it. Disengage from it. Say no. The Shin of Erev writes, it says, by Vayimoyin, Yosef refuses a shalshalas. Vayimoyin. So he says, Yosef told his wife, Nain, Nain, Nain. Three times. Vayimoyin. Nain, Nain. I don't know that he spoke in Yiddish to Potiphar's wife, but that's a Nain, Nain, Nain. Loi, Loi, Loi. Or an Egyptian, whatever, however you say no. I don't know Egyptian. Ancient Egyptian. So sometimes I'm in a position where I have to say, no, this is just not for me. I know it's damaging. I know it's destructive. I can't transform it. I can disengage from it. But with compassion, not by breaking. You're not breaking a part of yourself. You're acknowledging I have different parts. And integration is the key. Understanding that I have different dimensions and they're all authentic and they're all part of my purpose. On a deeper level, the Atamachaya Skula means... That if you go deeper, you'll see that within this craving, there's a spark, there's a search, there's a spiritual search. You're looking for something very wholesome. It's translating, it's translating, it's expressing itself in something grotesque, but it's not. Verstehst? And it's, that's what he means. If you work through this aspect, you will have the greatest growth. Again, if you want to talk in a marital, marital metaphor, the greatest harmony between a husband and a wife is from the moments of rupture, from those things that would drive them apart, from the disagreements, from the disappointments, from the sense of feeling estranged or emotionally alienated. When, one, when, when together they can work it through and see what each one is struggling with, with compassion, that then becomes the strongest link between them. Why? Because in that space, because you took the weakest link and you turned it into the strongest. And whenever you take the weakest link and you turn it into a connection, it becomes the strongest. And also because over there lay some very, very deep, vulnerable stuff. In my darkness lay very, very deep growth, but it takes a lot of compassion 
a lot of compassion and a lot of courage to be able to be able to face it. So what does this mean in every person's life? That every part of me, I have to be able to connect with my highest and deepest self. No part of my life should I disassociate from my highest part. My highest should not be disassociated from my lowest. My lowest should not be disassociated from my highest. Every experience, every feeling, even a sensation that's happening in my body is all an invitation. It's an invitation to go deeper, to climb deeper, to reach into a deeper place, to become more aware, to help me reveal my authentic self, my chayshin. So what I see as my lowest dimension is really an invitation. It's a catalyst. It's an opportunity to touch my most spiritual, vulnerable, divine spaces. On the other hand, there's no chayshin without an ephod. There's no ephod without a chayshin, and there's no chayshin without an ephod. Because the purpose of the chayshin is not to disengage, it's to infuse, it's to illuminate from the lave, from the panim, into the acher. Mi cha'amcha ki Yisrael goy echad ba'aretz. Who is like your nation Israel, one nation on earth doesn't only mean we're one nation or a special nation. This is what makes the Micham Chaki Yisrael. That even when it comes to Eretz, they remain Echad. The Achdus, the unity, is not silenced when you come to Artsius, when you come to earthiness. Finally, here we can come to the last point. And that is, when you talk about the Jewish people, there's two states of the Jewish people. There's the state of the Jewish people the way they're in the Ephod and the state of the Jewish people the way they're in their Chayshin. That's why the names of the Shvatim were transcribed twice, not once. It represents two different states of Klal Yisrael. By Matan Torah it says, Panim bepanim dibur Hashem imachem. Hashem spoke to you face to face. I was there with my full heart. The, the Shashim describes B'yoyim, Tzeno Arena B'nois Tziyoyim, Look at the king, the crown that his mother made him. So the Mishnah says in Tainis, Chasunase is Matan Torah. As the Mishnah says, the day Simchasli when the heart is on fire, like by Aaron Virachov Samach Beliboy, Panim Beponim. When there's a relationship heart to heart, it's called face to face. When a chassan and a kala says when Adam and Chava were created, they were created acher ba'acher, like Siamese twins, back to back, can't see each other. Then there was a surgery, a surgical decoupling, they could look at each other face to face. What's the difference? It's a concept. There's a relationship where I can't see you, in, I can't look at the other person in the face. Because of shame, I can't look another person in the eyes. They can't look me in the eyes. So what do we do? Acher ba'acher means it could be two people, they live in the same house, but they never see each other, back to back. We're connected, and maybe connected by the hip, as they say. But it's back to back, acher ba'acher. It's the aphoid, it's not the choshen. It's not ponim ba'ponim. That's why Moshe talks to the Jews and he says, achere Hashem alekeichem teleichu. Sometimes your relationship with Hashem is achere. You're facing the back, because you're facing with your back. I can't see you, because I can't see me. I can only see you if I could see me. But if I'm related only to my own back, I can't relate to somebody else's ponim, somebody else's panimius. So there's a concept of achere Hashem alekeichem telecho. After the sin of this, the story of the spies, Moshe tells the Jewish people that shaftem uh, me achere Hashem. They tried to go up to Eretz Yisrael the next day, 
And he said, it's not going to Because from a face you went to the back. And they, they were in the desert for 40 years where the Torah says, the Navi says, They were following Acharai. There's a relationship which I'm relation, related to somebody in a very deep, intimate, exciting, exuberant, enthusiastic way. My face is present, my pneumius. And sometimes I'm feeling strife and struggle, disassociation. That's when I'm dealing with my own wounds. That's called I'm in a state of achirayim. It's hard for me to see the face of God. It's hard for me to see my, my face, my pneumius. What happens? Eretz Yisrael is the face. But they're going to be in the desert is lechtech acherai midbar acherai. When Hashem told Moshe after the sin of the spies, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Let me just start over. So Moshe uses this is the last source. Vaat and shlach perik yudalit vaat yigdal no koyach adenoi kasher debar talema. Moshe says, I need now that the koyach of Adna should become stronger. Like you said, Hashem and he achieves again atonement for the Jewish people so that he could stay in the desert 40 years and the next generation goes into Eretz Yisrael. This is where Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud needs the Koyach of Yudke Vovke. Remember, Ephod is Havaya and Adna. Ephod is the Ach, Ocher. After they're going to stay in the desert. Hashem. Alev, Dalet, Nun, Yud, need the Koyach of the Choshen of Yudke Vovke in order to be able to link the two like the Gartel that connects you that there shouldn't be a separation because on the contrary there's the Choshen and there's the Eifot and it's both a relationship and the truth is that through the Eifot you reach a much deeper place that you can't even reach without it. Like he says, Hashem as a result of the story of the Miraglim, the glory of Hashem will be revealed in the whole world, not just in Eretz Yisrael. Because the Miraglim was the source of all the Golos. And that's why the Ephod was made of 28 strands. You remember? Back to 28. Chavches. That's Va'ata Yigdalma. Koyach. The Aleph Dalet Nun Yud has the Koyach, the 28 strands, and he says that the Choshen should be made just like the Ephod. Why is the Choshen made just like the Ephod? Because really the two are not separate. By the Choshen, he says, you should make. By the Ephod, he says, they should make. Because Moshe Rabbeinu himself, which was in Hashem Adatzilis, Moshe Rabbeinu himself was always face to face. So you make the Choshen. The Ephod is said in third person. They shall make the Ephod. It's a symbol. Sometimes a person is in a place where you could say you, and sometimes I say they. When a person is in front of me, I say you. When it's third person or third people, a third, it's called who, Lush and Nistar, you say they, they're not here. In a place of revelation, you say you. In a place of concealment, you say they. Choshen is a place of revelation. It's on the heart. It's the front of the person. When I'm looking at the panam of the person, I see it. Ephod represents a more, a deeper place of concealment. So over there it says, so in the Jewish people themselves, you have different levels. You have the way the Jewish people are in a state of Ephod. You have the way the Jewish people are in a state of Choshen. And that's why in Ephod, you don't have a special rock for every tribe. In Choshen, you have a special rock for every tribe. Because in life, there's a time when you really grow into yourself. When you really grow into yourself and every Shevet knows exactly who it is and what it is. You have your full identity. It's fully integrated. 
In Ephraim, I'm still struggling. I don't know exactly who I am. So there's a lot of, there's a chalent, as they say. There is a unity, but the unity doesn't come from individuation yet. In the Chayshen, so to speak, every, every soul fully embraces its light when there's real, you could see certain people, there's a halo of peace and light that encompasses them because you, so to speak, grow into yourself and it comes through a person's challenges, through their habalitame paischinlai. And the Eifer, they're not there yet, but they still have Avnei Shoyam, which is the rock of Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef HaTzadik had that unique ability, the lofty soul who can go into the lowest places, and not only was he not derailed, but he transformed it, that the other brothers could not. The other brothers were more segregated. Yosef had a Ksoynes Pasim, which was a multicolorful tunic, a prerequisite to the Big Day Kohona, to be able to combine all of it. In the Jew, among the Jewish people themselves, you have different types of Jews. You have Chayshin Jews, you have Afer Jews, you have Jews who apparently are in a very high state, and you have sometimes Jews, unfortunately, who spiritually are in a lower, less sublime state. Comes the Torah and says, Never ever separate Chayshin Jews from Afer Jews. Don't separate yourself, don't separate them. It's one body, it's one organism, it's one nation. I need you essentially, just like you need me essentially. The greatest error of reality is when we separate the Chayshin from the Eifot, when the two become completely separate. Sometimes it's easy. It's easy just to separate. We, don't dis- we disagree. We can't communicate. Let me amputate you for my life. Sometimes families do it. There's too much stress. There's too much agony. Every simch is another fight and another argument. This one has this shitta. You have situations where sometimes a father will not speak to a daughter, to a granddaughter, siblings not, but why? Because they have disagreements. Maybe the disagreements are serious disagreements. Person says, I'm in a high state, you're in a low state, we disagree, let's just cut off the relationship so we don't have Agmas Nefesh. Comes the Torah and says, Chas v'shalom. Even if it's true that you're up there and he's down there. I'm not sure it's true, but let's say it's true. That you represent the peak of holiness and this person represents the abyss of darkness. Because when I separate from you, when I separate from a family member, when I separate from somebody else, when I separate from another Jew, when I detach, I'm not just detaching from you. I'm also detaching from me. So in life, the Torah gives you a blueprint that Hashem tells Moshe, in every aspect of your internal life, individually and connect, collectively, the Choshen and the Eifod ultimately work, not just together, but in perfect, perfect synchronization. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.